Good to be with you. We're in the middle, actually, yeah, about dead in the middle of this series called Life Hacks. And uh, in Life Hacks, what we're doing is this. We're looking at um, eight statements that Jesus made and uh, digging at those a little bit, trying to understand them. They're fascinating um, because Jesus is God and he is our creator. When he says something, it affects us at every level of our humanity. So these statements are, are simple. Some of them are very uh, profound. Some of them are a little bit weird until you understand them a little bit. So that, but they're, they're kind of simplistic. But when you apply them to your life, they wind up kind of cutting through all the stratas of our humanity. They help us on the soul level, but they also help us then to connect and kind of function with each other. So we've been looking at these and understanding them and kind of pulling into the background, and then we turn them into life hacks. So kind of the five memorable things that we can remember so that we can uh, take these and uh, land them in our hearts and in our lives. We've been talking out of the book of Matthew. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up there in Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs, and it's page 677 in those Bibles. And uh, if you're electronic, we use the version app. So you can open that up, download it if you want. Hit live, and our zip code is 44333, and uh, the notes are there. You can feed back to us there. You can text us from there. You can do a lot of things with that app, so uh, go for it. Um, open that up. Matthew chapter 5, we looked at the first four of these eight statements. So starting in verse 3, blessed are the, pure, or, or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We pressed into those. I put the life hacks in your notes, uh, in, your notes in the program. If you want to listen to the whole conversation, go to our website, graceohio.org, and uh, you can watch the conversation there. You can listen to it, or you can get a free um, podcast or iTunes if you want. Sign up for that. It'll just get sent to you every week and uh, kind of catch up on all the details Let's look at the next two statements here, and uh, we'll dig at them a little bit and then turn them into life hacks. So verse 7 is the next statement. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And let's just dig at that a little bit. We'll start with the first one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, that statement seems simplistic on the surface, but it's Jesus, so there's always a lot of depth to everything that he says. And you have to be a little bit careful with this statement, or we read it wrong. So we've talked throughout the series about context. Context is a big deal. So you don't, wanna, you don't ever want to take a sentence or a verse out of the Bible and just let it instantly stand on its own. You always want to make sure it's in the right context. And there's two major layers of context. One is the rest of the Bible. So in the context of the rest of the Bible, what does that statement mean? And then, and then there's a bunch of nuances to that. And then the other major layer of context is culture. So this is being said in a culture, being heard by people in a culture. We know from verse 2 of chapter 5 that this is being said to Jesus' earliest disciples who were uh, Jewish. So these are ancient Jewish people in an ancient Jewish culture being taught by a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. So there's all of that kind of that goes into it and they would hear 
they would hear what Jesus was saying through that. So the more we understand it, the better we're going to connect. So blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That word blessed in the original language, so we translate our English Bible out of the Greek language. It's the same Greek word that we use for our word happy. So Jesus is literally saying happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When Jesus said this in that culture, that would have been heard for some as very disillusioning and for others as scandalous, okay? Because of their background and the way that they saw Jesus. So in this group of disciples, however big it was, that all the people that were there, there were two kind of predominant views about who the Messiah was. So Jesus is claiming to be the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. These guys are basically investigating that question. Is, is this the promised Messiah from the Old Testament? And they would have been asking that question through some preconceived ideas, two predominant ones. The first one was this. Much of the, many of those disciples, a very predominant view of the day was this, that the, the Messiah was going to come and what he was going to do was he was going to expel the Romans from Israel and fix the government. See, the dream of fixing the government has been an old dream. It's been around for years, right? So that was their view. Now they thought this, they thought the Messiah was going to come and reestablish the throne of David so that the Messiah was going to bring in the military and political power that King David had in the Old Testament. Now, this, this view was so predominant that there was actually several contemporaries of Jesus that were at least alive when he was alive that claimed to be the Messiah and used that claim to raise up basically an armed rebellion. And there were armed Jewish rebellions who rebelled against the Roman kind of throne or power, and Rome would kind of squash them like a bug, but that, was, that actually happened more than once in Jesus' lifetime. Okay. In fact, many people would say that, believe that the apostle Peter would be of this school of thought. He's the one that cut the temple guard's ear off. So that was the idea. Give us swords, give us weapons. Those weapons will be supernaturally empowered like often happened in the Old Testament and that's what the Messiah will do. So when they thought about what Jesus said, it was very disillusioning to them because in their mind, they thought, Blessed are the victorious. Happy are the powerful. So when Jesus says, happy are the merciful, they're like, what? Who wants to be, we don't want to be merciful. We want to, we want to kill some people up in here, right? And they're like, done. The other group of people, the other predominant view would have been ancient Jewish people who were religious leaders. The Bible usually refers to them as Pharisees or Sadducees. And their view was this, the coming Messiah was going to perfectly implement all Jewish law. So way back from the Ten Commandments and then other Mosaic law, and then these guys had added all kinds of details to that law, their thought was the Messiah is going to show up and he's going to agree with us. He's going to raise up a theocracy where he rules on earth and everything that we said needs to happen, he's going to cause to happen. Now, when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, 
that was scandalous to them because they didn't really have much of a disposition for mercy. In that school of thought, in that Pharisee Sadducee school of thought was this idea, if something happened to you, it's because you broke the rules, right? So if your child was born blind, you, sent, you broke a law, that, that's what you get, right? If you can't walk, well, you broke a law, that's what you, if you have leprosy, that's what happens to people who break the law. So their thought was, people who don't keep the law, you just put them on a fast track to hell, purify, and then we'll all live by these laws the way that we think we should live. So when Jesus says, happy are the merciful, it was like, well, that's scandalous because happy are those who keep the rules, not the merciful. So when these original hearers heard mercy, they brought all of their culture and all of their opinions and even their personal, like individual personalities to bear on that word. And they thought of mercy as very one-dimensionally. They thought those who I choose or would think to extend mercy to, this is the category that that would, that would be in. Now, we might look at these guys and think, well, no wonder they were jerks, right? You know, and I would submit to you that you and I are very much the same way. That when we think of mercy, we think of it as one-dimensional and there's limits to it, Okay? So we would tend to be like this. <clears throat> if you have a cold, I mean, I'm gonna show some mercy on you, I'm gonna bring you some chicken soup, right? If you have cancer, I'm gonna show some mercy on you, I'm gonna help you out, maybe have a fundraiser for you. If you have AIDS, what'd you do, man? How'd you get that? <laughs> See. If you're having trouble in school and you're 10 years old, I'm going to go into the, the inner city, possibly. I'm going to mentor you and be a father figure. If you're having trouble in school and you're 16, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of wrap my arms around you and try to cast some vision into your life, right? Because you're getting in trouble. If you committed armed robbery, you deserve to go to jail, dummy. People go to jail who deserve to go to jail. We are, we are selective and how we would extend mercy. Now, I'm not talking about enabling people. I'm not talking about excusing sin. So there's obviously a broader conversation here. But if you think about your heart and your mind, we're selective. I'll give mercy to you as long as I feel like you deserve it, then I'll be merciful. So when we, when we look at blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy, we tend to keep that as a point system. I was merciful here, I was merciful here, I was merciful here, I was merciful here. So I'm gonna stand before God and here's my 25 mercy points. I would like some mercy in return. Because we think of mercy one-dimensionally, we think about our extension of mercy. Now here's why that thinking derails us from our relationship with God. Because mercy is not one-dimensional. Mercy is two-dimensional. So one aspect of mercy is me extending it to someone else. And I would say to you, that is the lesser of the two dimensions. The main way that you and I interact with mercy, ready, is our reception of it. 
I receive much more mercy than I could ever think about extending. Because when I think about extending, I tend to mess it up. In fact, the degree that I receive mercy is directly correlated to the degree in which I extend it. You and I are objects of God's mercy. We are completely, totally, unquestionably, absolutely dependent on the mercy of God. The first time that I sin, the first time that I look at my mommy and I said, no, all the way through the grossest things that I could ever do with my life, I, as a sinner, the moment I sin, what I deserve is to be separated from God, be a full object of his wrath, and spend eternity in hell. Anything short of that is God giving me mercy in my life. And I receive mercy. For every one time that I could cognitively think to willfully extend mercy to someone else, I have received it 10,000-fold. Now, how do I know that? Because I am the biggest sinner that I know. You know how I know that? Because I know my sins. I know what's behind my smile. I know what I said and I know what I thought simultaneously, right? I know what I did in secret. I know the grossness of my life much more than I would ever know the grossness of somebody else's life. And Jesus says, that whatever someone has done on the exterior of their life, you have done a thousandfold on the interior of your life. So this person had an affair with their body. You've had an affair with your heart a thousand times. This person killed someone with their hands, but you hate your brother. You've hated, you've murdered them a thousand times in your heart. This person embezzled $100,000. You only sold 10 from your mommy's purse, but it's all embezzlement. Jesus would look and say, we're all sinners. There are different consequences to sin. There are different results from sin. It's not enabling. It's not turning a blind eye to sin. It's a recognition that I am in desperate, complete, thoroughly in need of the mercy of God every moment of my life. The more that I receive that and the more that I understand that, Being merciful is not an act of my will, it's a result of the position of my heart. Because how can I look at someone and retract or refrain from giving them what has been so freely and abundantly given to me? Being merciful is not a set of good deeds that we do. Being merciful is the natural overflow of having a right relationship with God. I wrote it this way in my notes. I said this, a person who is merciful is not a person who's nice once in a while. A person who is merciful is a person humbled by their need for mercy and overwhelmed by God's willingness to give it. The reason it was disillusioning and scandalous when Jesus said this is because the hearers did not recognize their need for mercy. So they felt the right to withhold it from someone else. I love what the prophet Micah says about this. If you go back to the left in your Bible, about oh, 25 pages or so, right, right to the Old Testament, Micah chapter seven, Micah's talking about his relationship with God. He says this, 
Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You have again have, have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and, and hurl all of our iniquities into the depth of the sea. Micah's talking to God and he says, God, this is our relationship. Our relationship is not me getting my act together and, and then deciding when I feel like acting like you. Our relationship is me being the recipient of all that you are. And as you change me, as you birth mercy in me, it naturally overflows from my life. Because this is who I am and who you are, God. You are a God who pardons my sin. You are a God who forgives my transgressions. You are a God who doesn't stay angry at me. You delight in giving me mercy. You will have compassion on me. You will tread my sins, my sins under your feet. You, you will hurl all my, my iniquities into the sea. I am the greatest sinner that I know. The apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners because I know more of my sin than I would ever know of yours. And you will only do what I have already done and what God is merciful for me in. And as I humble myself and receive, download, understand the mercy of God, it is mercy then that will flow from my life. A merciful person will be shown mercy. Well, of course they will. Because mercy is simply an indication of a heart that's been fully surrendered to God when I am poor in spirit, when I mourn and grieve my sin, when I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy, then mercy is an outcome because it's an inflow into my life. Now the next statement functions kind of the same way. On the surface, it feels like a work, right? Like something I should do. So Matthew chapter five, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. So pure in heart, I wanna, I wanna see God, so I better get my heart pure, right? I better get my act together. I better quit smoking, drinking, chewing, and date girls who do, cheering for Michigan, all the deadly sins, right? So I, should, I, should, I should knock it off and purify my heart because I wanna see God. I want, you to hear, I want you to hear what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, happy are the pure in action for they will see God, those who got their act together. Happy are the pure in, in intention. So everybody who meant well will, will see God. Happy, ble blessed are the, those who practice their religion. Everybody who came to church this weekend, they're gonna see God, especially the people who came last night, they get to see God twice, right? It's just like, it's not a point, it's not I earn these points and then I apply them to my eternal condition. So Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see or be shown God. Now, here's the question. Here's the, here's the issue. Ready? I can't purify my own heart. So how in the world am I supposed to do this? I can't make my heart pure. If I could make my heart pure, then I could work my way to heaven. You push it back in the context of the rest of the Bible. One of the things the Apostle Paul says is this. He says, it's by grace you're saved through faith. This is not of yourselves not by works, so that nobody can boast. So I can't get my heart together, or I, I could have got around to doing that already. So how in the world do I achieve a pure heart so that I can see God? It's the same thing we're looking at in mercy. 
It's something God has to do in me. Purity of heart certainly speaks to inner moral purity. That my morality, my, my heart is at the place it needs to be. But the bigger picture of this idea is, is the idea of our passions. My heart is passionate about the things of God. And that is what causes moral purity. So when my heart is given to fully loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, what Jesus says, he says that's the, the, the first and greatest commandment. Love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. When my heart is given to loving the Lord that way, inner moral purity is a natural outcome because what I give my passions to governs my moral behavior. So Jesus says things like this in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. He doesn't say, if you obey what I command, you will prove that you love me, and then we'll see if you get to see me or not. He says, get, get, your, get your focus off your behavior and get it over here on your heart. Love me, receive love from me, let me define your heart, and your behavior will correct itself. You, you'll obey what I command. What fills my heart is what defines my life, right? Because Christ will not coexist with sin in my heart. So like the Apostle John says in 1 John, he says, hey guys, you can't hate your brother and love God. I can't, I can't fill my heart with hate for somebody else while filling my heart with love for God. Why? Because one will displace the other one, right? Try to, try to hate somebody that you pray for every day. Try to hate somebody that you humbly serve every day. Uh, try to hate somebody that you're trying to uh, illuminate their life to the love of Christ. You can't do it because the love of Jesus will displace that hate or vice versa. You have to like shut down your heart for God in order to fill your heart with hate. This is true of temptation. So, so the way that you overcome temptation is not by focusing on that temptation and like gearing up this willpower. I'm not going to look at porn again. I'm not going to be so, I, I mean, it. Just, never, ever, ever going to work. The way you overcome temptation is by filling your heart with Christ and Christ will displace the sin in your life, Right? So you, you can't watch porn while listening to worship music and reading your Bible. It's just going to turn you on. It's just not going to work, right? You, you, can't, you can't be materialistic while giving everything you have to the poor. It's just not going to work. So I displace the temptation not by getting the temptation under control. I displace the temptation by filling my heart with a love for God. Why? because my passions govern my behaviors. So if I'm passionate about money, my behaviors will be driven by trying to get money. If I'm passionate about uh, my body, my behaviors will be marked by that. I'll be way into how I look or way into how I don't look or I'll be into sex and immorality because I gotta bring pleasure to my body. If I'm passionate about myself, my behaviors will be marked by serving myself. I'll be a narcissist. I'll be a selfish person because that's what I'm passionate about. If I'm passionate about Christ, 
my behaviors will be defined by Christ-likeness. When I love God, my love for God becomes the passion of my heart and my passions govern my behaviors. Purity of heart is not a set of get your act together. Purity of heart is a byproduct of what I fill my heart with. Moral purity is an outcome. It's not a avenue to. It's fascinating, the psalmist writes about this. If you go back to the book of Psalms, chapter 51, so go to the left in your Bible about, I don't know, 100 pages or more probably. Psalms 51, the psalmist is writing about this, and as you read this, you start to see these statements play out. Okay, so let me show you what I mean. Verse one, chapter 51, Psalms. So he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from sin. That sounds a lot like a person who is poor in spirit. God, forgive me, change me. I am spiritually bankrupt. I am desperate for you. And he goes on, look at verse three. For I know my transgressions, my sin is all, always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Against you and you only is, have I sinned, God. I have sinned against you. That sounds a lot like a person who is mourning their sin, mourning the separation that they've caused in their relationship with God. See, their heart is in a certain place. They understand, I am, I am bankrupt, I'm totally depraved, I'm desperate for you, God, and I can't, you gave your son all. I'm, why do I do that? I've, I've sinned against you, I've hurt your heart, okay? Now, from that position, watch what he prays for. Verse five, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, you taught me wisdom in the secret place, cleanse me with his... Not I, it's not, I will clean myself. God, do this for me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, not I will wash myself. You wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Look at this, catch it, Ray, verse 10. You create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. I, I can't create in me a clean heart. Right? I'm a diphthong. God has to do this work in me. How does he do it? In my spiritual poverty, in my grief, forgive me for my sin, change me. I want to be in close relationship with you. You created me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach the transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." You don't delight in sacrifice or offering. You're not, God, you don't want my works. Here, I quit smoking, drinking, chewing, date girls to do, chair for Michigan, right? You don't want my offerings. This is what I have to offer you. 
a poor spirit who mourns my sin. Here is a broken heart, a broken spirit, a spirit that recognizes I am completely dependent on your mercy in my life and a contrite, broken heart and, and a humility. I humble myself before you, God. Would you do this in me? Would you create in me a pure heart? People who are locked in to Christ and are being defined and directed by Christ are merciful people because they recognize their need for mercy, so of course they'll be shown mercy. People who are locked into who Christ is, who want more than anything to be connected and used and loved and close with God, will receive a pure heart because God will transform them. So of course they'll see God. And Jesus speaking to people who had political aspirations or said, give us a new set of rules and we're following them, is saying to them, no, 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 guys, listen, happiness is found in your relationship with me. Happiness is found in your connection with me. And I will do these things in you. You actually can't even do them for yourself. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see or be shown God. Now, it's kind of the backstory, right? So there's a lot there when you press into it. It's very counterintuitive. Just as much to, to the guys who heard it in the first place as it is to you and I. Because we, we think of ourselves very differently, but actually we're just all human beings, so we struggle with the same thing, right? And so yielding my heart and letting it be defined by Christ, it produces something in me. And when I see that, recognize it, long for that, God does it. And will I be shown mercy and will I see God? Most assuredly, be, be secure in that when these are the outcomes of your love for him, right? Okay, let's turn it into life hacks. Here it is, ready? Five useful things Jesus is teaching right here. Here's the life hacks. Life hack number one. Five useful things Jesus is teaching. Number one, I am that guy. If you can remember that, it'll change your life. I am that guy. What does that mean? That guy that you can't stand, that gets on your nerves, that drives you crazy, you're that guy, right? That guy who always cuts a corner, you're that guy. That guy who you think is pretty much a a little bit of a pervert, you're that guy, right? I am, that that selfish guy you can't stand is always stuck on himself. Yep, you're that guy. I am that guy. I am the chief of sinners. I am the most sinful person that I know. And that is humbling. It's humbling. It causes me to have a contrite heart, a humbled heart. God, I am in need of your mercy always because I am that guy. And that ties directly into life hack number two. Here it is, ready? Receiving mercy is the key to extending mercy. Receiving mercy is the key to extending mercy. When I recognize that I am that guy and God is merciful to me, it is God's mercy to me that flows through his mercy to somebody else. Okay. How do you have mercy 
on someone, just see yourself in them. Just see yourself in them. Well, he, he stole $5,000. Well, you stole five. So how many zeros does it cross over to where you get to withdraw mercy? Well, that, that guy looked at porn. Well, you remembered yours. So, so where does that cross over? Well, see, she, she's so selfish. She talks about everybody. I mean, I said right there on Facebook, she talks about everybody. Really? Because, see what I'm saying? I, I am that guy. You are that guy. And the more that we realize our need, the more we receive mercy, it's the key to extending it. That person who's in need of mercy is no different than me or you. It's not enabling, and it's not excusing sin. It's my attitude, my humility toward the one that God has brought into my path. All right, so two, first two life hacks. I am that guy, extending mercy is the key. Uh, receiving mercy is the key to extending mercy. Life hack number three, here we go. What consumes my thoughts defines my passions. What consumes my thoughts defines my passions. Right, so this is the way it works. What I fill my mind with is what I fill my heart with. What I fill my mind with is what I fill my heart with. Well, how do I know what consumes my thoughts? Well, ask people. Whatever you talk about the most is what consumes your thoughts. Whatever you spend your money on, look at your checkbook. Whatever you spend your money on is what consumes your thoughts. Whatever you spend your time on is what consumes your thoughts. So what I fill my mind with is what I fill my heart with. Whatever consumes my thoughts defines my passions. So if I, fill, I can fill my thoughts with, with filthy things, if I fill my thoughts with all kinds of immorality, my passion will be immorality. I can fill my thoughts with worldly things. I'm all about my job. It's just about my job. I need more things. Okay, then, then whatever you, then it's just, you know, it's temporal stuff. I fill my mind, I fill my heart. I can fill my mind with useless things. I sat down the other day and I watched 10 hours of swamp people. I just swamp, I'm all, I'm obsessed with swamp people. All right, so you filled your heart with uselessness and your IQ went down. See how that works? That it's connected. So whatever fills my mind fills my heart. This is why God says whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is admirable, whatever, whatever is godly, think about these things. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Why? Because what goes in my brain goes in my heart, okay? And I can alter what goes in my brain. So for every hour that I'm watching Swamp People, I could have spent time with God. For every hour that I'm watching Swamp People, I could have been serving someone, right? Because what fills my thoughts defines my passions. What goes in my brain goes in my heart. Now the, third, the fourth life hack is really tied to this one. Ready, here it is. What fills my mind, fills my, it defines my passions, and what I am passionate about, I am always passionate about my God. I am always passionate about my God. Okay, ready? So it works like this. What fills my mind, fills my heart. What fills my, what consumes my thoughts, defines my passions. 
okay? I'm always passionate about my God. What fills my mind fills my heart. And what fills my heart, ready, is what I worship. What fills my heart is what I worship. So I fill my mind with immorality, then I become passionate about immorality, and sex is now my God. I fill my mind with my job, so I fill my passions with my job. Now my job is now my God. See how it works? What fills my mind fills my heart, and what fills my heart is what I worship. What? How do you know? I, I don't know what I worship. Sure you do. Ask people what you talk about because out of the overflow of the heart of the mouth speaks. Look and see what you spend your money on because your heart and your treasure are always in the same place, Jesus said. And what do you do with your time? Because we always do what we love, period. We will find a way to do it. What fills my mind fills my heart and what fills my heart is what I worship. It's my God. So God says, you can actually affect that, right? Because I create mercy in you, and I create purity of heart in you. You can focus your mind on me. That will cause your heart to beat passionately after me, and now you will worship and invest your life in the right things. What fills my mind fills my heart. What fills my heart is my God. That's what I worship. Okay, now, here's the fifth life hack, and this one's really, really important. Ready? The fifth life hack is this. We need to try harder not to try harder. We need to try harder not to try harder. Okay? We did a series in the fall called Reset, and, and it was all kind of based off of that idea, trying harder not to try harder. So you can go listen to that online. I wrote a book about it called Reset. You can get out in the bookstore if you want to dig into that. So this is a little reminder. We need to try harder not to try harder. This is, what, this is the danger of these life hacks that I just gave you. The danger of the first four life hacks is that we walk out with a to-do list. What well, fills my heart, fills, fills my mind. I gotta, I gotta read the Bible. I gotta give me some Bible. I gotta say a prayer, right? I gotta listen to, I gotta listen to the, I gotta get that free CD back there. I gotta listen to some worship music, right? Turns into a to-do list. Now here's the danger. To-do lists don't create relationships, they reveal hearts. Okay, so if I come home and uh, Heidi's weepy about something and I'm like, what's, what's wrong with you, right? That's usually the way I talk to Heidi. What's wrong with you, right? And she says, I'm really upset with you. Why? Well, you're never home on time and when you come home, you kick the cat. This is all hypothetical because we're a Christian family. We don't have a cat. So <laughs> you kick the cat, right? And then you, and then you, you, you never help me with the dishes, right? She just gave me a to-do list. Now, if I respond to that as a to-do list, right, I will not create relationship. So I come home the next time, home on time, didn't kick the cat, dumb cat. Eat dinner, get up, here your dishes are clean, there. Are we close now? Right? To-do lists don't create relationships, they reveal hearts. Because Heidi isn't giving me a to-do list, she's trying to express her heart to me. See, when you, when you don't come home, you're, it feels like you're saying you love your job more than us. And then when you do come home, you're angry. 
You're not angry when you go to meet with clients. So do you resent us? Because you don't really try to be here and you come in mad. It sure doesn't feel like, we, we feel like the worst part of your day. And then you get here and I, I've tried to help you relax and chill out, right? Because you have a big job and it's stressful. So I, I literally make dinner for you like your mommy used to. You eat it and then you go kick your feet up and you watch swamp people for the rest of the night. I feel like your waitress, not your wife. See, that to-do list just get, it gave me insight into what she's actually asking me for. She's not telling me to do things. She's asking me to position my heart in a different place. When I fill my mind with junk and God says, why don't you read my word? I read, I read the Bible 10 minutes last week. It didn't help a bit. No. Once you know my heart, you get it most easily, it's most readily available to you in my word, in the Bible. Why don't you pray? Talk with me. I asked for a safe trip and a good night's sleep. What are you talking about? Now, talk with me. Confess your sin. Interact with me. Why don't you, you you know, turn off Justin Bieber because that's going to lead you away from God. Why don't you you put on worship music? Why? I I like that. Because your thoughts will be consumed with me. It causes relationship to happen. Don't quit trying harder to try harder. Be with me, interact with me, be in my presence. And guess what will happen? I will change you. And instead of some moralistic behavior, your heart will be changed. How do I know what that's gonna be like? When mercy starts becoming an instinct instead of a to-do. When purity of heart becomes a longing instead of con- conviction, it's because we've connected with each other. And you recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy and grieving your sin and longing for me, I'll hear that prayer and answer it all day, every day. So quit trying harder to try harder and be with me, and I will cause these things. And then you can have great certainty and assurance that you'll be shown mercy and you will see me. That works? All right. Guys, why don't we take a few minutes and like just steal a little bit of time with God, okay? So why don't you, what if we bowed our heads and like prayed and why we're kind of like out of the chaos of it all? The band will come out and they'll play some music. They're going to play a song, by the way, that's a fantastic prayer we could pray. Why don't you steal a few minutes with God? If there's sin to confess, confess it. If if there's change that needs to be made, tell God about that. Maybe just ask to hear from him or be with him a little bit, right? And uh, lean in to what Jesus is saying and allow him to bring about this change in our hearts.